Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This month, the Agora Podcast of the Month is me. So, as I bask in my newfound notoriety, I will celebrate by cutting this intro short. I'll just remind you that the website is Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com and you can go there and donate and read the blog and some other cool stuff. So if you have the time, also please rate and review us on iTunes and enjoy the show. And having reached his country, Arnulf died of a horrible disease. He gave up the ghost, ardently tormented by those tiny worms they call lice. Indeed, it is said that these worms proliferated in such a way that they could be diminished by no therapy of the doctors. Whether, according to the prophet, he should be stricken with a double punishment for such an enormous crime, that is, the unleashing of the Hungarians, or whether he attained a future forgiveness through torments in the present world, we leave it to the knowledge of the one about whom the apostle says, Therefore judge not before the time, until the Lord come who both will bring light to the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then every man shall have praise from God. Quote from Leotprand of Cremona's Revenge, as read by Chris Stewart of the History of China podcast. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, I am Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 24 Elegans Juvenes. Last time out, we saw Guy III of Spoleto become Holy Roman Emperor, a title he held for three years. Despite a promising start, mostly spent in beating on Berengar Friuli, ultimately Guy ran afoul of the papacy and the king of Germany, Arnulf. Scared of Guy's power, Pope Formosus called Arnulf of Carinthia down to Italy with a promise of the imperial title. Despite early success and a clear military superiority, the brass ring eluded Arnulf. He took Pavia, but Guy fled. Before he could be pursued, Guy died, leaving the title of emperor somewhat up for grabs, but most obviously in the hands of his son, Lambert, whose mother had fortified Rome against Arnulf. To get his title, Arnulf would need to do two things. First, he would need to take Rome and kill or capture Lambert. Unfortunately, Rome was now heavily fortified by Lambert's mother, Engeltrude. This, combined with the massive plague that Arnulf's army had just sustained, should probably be enough to explain why Arnulf left. 
But Arnulf also received word of a conspiracy against him at this point, prominently featuring Adelbert of Tuscany, that third major landlord, who had apparently been conspiring with none other than Berengar of Friuli, the second major landlord in Italy. This was bad because this threatened to cut Arnulf off from his ability to retreat out of Italy, and so he packed it up for the season. Unfortunately, on his way back, he was ambushed in the passes by Rudolf of Burgundy, and so between mopping the floor up with the Burgundians and a famine in Bavaria, we can understand why Arnulf may have taken a little time to get back around to Italy. So, by 895, Lambert's forces once again controlled most of northern Italy, and he was able to move back into the traditional capital at Pavia. With things at something of a stalemate in the north, I would like to take a second to turn our attention to southern Italy. You will recall that before going on his fanciful journey to France, Guy III had briefly conquered the Lombard Duchy of Benevento, before being kicked out in a revolution. Despite this, Benevento was pretty clearly not the power it had once been. At one time, it had, for the most part, controlled most of southern Italy. But those days were now long gone. This process had begun with one Emperor Basil the Macedonian, who had made resurgent Byzantine power in southern Italy his administration's top priority. Ultimately, it was a mixed success, as the Saracens would conquer the island of Sicily under his watch, but this turned out to be a blessing in disguise. The reinforcements sent by Basil were able to consolidate holdings on the mainland, and they aided the Frankish Emperor Louis II in his attempt to take Bari, if you'll recall. They weren't super useful, but they helped. As the focus of the Frankish and Greek empires strayed, the consolidation of Italy by Basil began to be self-sustaining. In alliance with the Venetians, the Byzantines came to control the Adriatic Sea, and the resulting trade made southern Italy wealthy in its own right. This included the semi-independent states of Amalfi, Salerno, and Naples, whose rising naval power helped neutralize the impact of the loss of Sicily. As the Frankish Empire began its death spasms up north, the Gadeshi and the Byzantines squeezed the Lombards in a vice grip. This was the context of Guy III's victory over Benevento, and if he could not hold it at the time, the Byzantines were more than willing to fill the power vacuum. Sometime after Guy's expulsion from the city, the Byzantines arrived and secured it for themselves. We know very little about the events that followed, but this was clearly not something that the Gadeshi could take lying down. They had built their power by expanding in the south, and even though they now had vast titular powers in the north, their practical power base remained in Spoleto. The Gadeshi could not have a resurgent Byzantine theme threatening their southern borders at the same time that they were facing off against Arnulf. And so, they sent a guy. Specifically, they sent Guy IV of Spoleto. Now, hold your confusion for a second. I have mentioned him before. This guy is the son of Guy the Rage, the one who was too young to inherit the duchy way back in 887. Well, after Uncle Guy III went off and became Holy Roman Emperor, he had a lot of new titles to hand out and couldn't be down in Spoleto all the time. And it also would not do to have his beloved nephew disinherited and destitute. So, given the impending threat, and given that Guy was now old enough to rule in his own right, the duchy was given to Nephew Guy. As the fourth guy to rule in Spoleto, he became Guy the Fourth, even though Guy the Third was still kicking around up north. But that guy was now called Emperor Guy. Okay. Once Lambert, son of Emperor Guy, inherited the leadership of the family, he also became emperor, and never became a Duke of Spoleto, which why is why he's just Lambert, and not Lambert the Third. Got it? Good. 
getting back to Southern Italy. The timeline is very sketchy, but we know that after assuming his position as Duke, Guy IV did what all red-blooded Gadeshi men did, and expanded the family holdings rather substantially at the expense of the people in the south. Specifically, Guy attacked the Byzantines in Benevento, and in 895 he scored a victory, crowning himself Prince of Benevento. Now, with the southern flank secure, the Gadeshi sought to recall Guy. A talented leader like Guy IV was needed up north at this time, with as many of his morally flexible Spoleto troops as he could spare. Prince Guy saw the urgency, and was loyal to the family, and appointed a regent in Spoleto, and apparently had started heading north when he got word that his regent had never made it to Benevento. Guy's chosen candidate, a local Lombard lord, was ambushed and captured by a different local lord who apparently had a grudge against him completely unrelated to the Gadeshi. Guy could not just let his regent languish in prison, and he could not start his rule in Benevento with a show of weakness, so he turned his army around and headed for the second lord's castle. This really was not the best situation for anyone involved. Lord Regent Guy was in jail, and the Lord with a grudge had managed to seriously annoy the most morally flexible army in southern Italy. But meanwhile, Guy was stuck for the next year in southern Italy with his army besieging the Castello of this nobody while northern Italy was invaded by scary Germans. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. We left northern Italy in a stalemate. Lambert had been crowned Holy Roman Emperor after Formosus had been him persuaded to do so by Empress Regent Engeltrude. In some way, this was a formality, as Lambert had already been crowned co-emperor by his father with the help of the previous pope, Stephen V. Podcast footnote. You may have noticed that I'm not so good with names. This is kind of a theme for me in my career, in my personal life, and unfortunately, on my show. I keep calling Pope Stephen V Leo the Fifth, Leo the Sixth, Leo the whatever. I really try to not do this. It's just something that slips through from time to time. I'm really sorry. I am really trying to fix this kind of thing. Unfortunately, in this situation, this slipped through not just here, but in the last several episodes. So I offer my heartfelt apologies. This is entirely my fault. Um, and hopefully you will all forgive me and continue to take me seriously. Thank you very much. End podcast footnote. Lambert was re-crowned just to make it official, and he began his reign. At this time, Lambert was around 14 years old, and was described by Leutprand of Cremona as an elegant youth, or elegans juvenes. He was also described as handsome but warlike, and very strict. This is not to be wondered at too much, as Lambert had been co-emperor since the age of 11, and had apparently spent most of that time leading armies uh, to a lot of success. We're told he secured a bunch of victories in the secondary theaters of the war in the north, so chalk that one up as a success for free-range parenting. Modern observers are going to be forgiven for doubting very much that Lambert was actually in, like, sole control of these armies and these victories that he was engaged in, that, you know, maybe he had a, a strong staff or a particularly gifted second-in-command. But as we're going to see, Lambert does pretty well for himself militarily. So, this one's sort of up in the air. Eleven-year-old war leader? Maybe. From a domestic standpoint, it's pretty clear that he was by his father's side when political decisions were being formulated. And indeed, 
domestic policy would never really be Lambert's main focus. Still, when Emperor Guy died outside of Pavia, Lambert was not with him. He was out in the field, kicking butts and taking names. He was in eastern Italy, leading his own army, which was probably for the best, given what happened, and which is why it was on the shoulders of Engeltrude to fortify Rome for her son. Once Lambert settled onto the throne, his mother remained an important presence, and seems to have directed domestic policy in Rome and Pavia while Lambert was out doing war stuff. So the stage is set. The year is 896. Lambert and Engeltrude have consolidated the Gadeshi hold on most of northern Italy, and have the Pope, well, protected in his castello. Guy IV is besieging some schmuck down in the south, and Berengar is in Friuli, and Arnulf is in Germany. Let the game begin. Supposedly, the precipitating event was yet another embassy from the Pope to Arnulf asking for aid. An embassy that was strenuously opposed, by the way, by longtime Gadeshi ally Archbishop Folk of Reims. Say hi to Archbishop Folk of Reims. I don't think we're going to be seeing him again. I suspect that, papal embassy or no, Arnulf was not going to leave things as they were at this point. His armies had invaded twice and somehow not gained control of Italy, and this time he was going to finish the job. He took his time, though, and made sure he did it right. He crossed into Friuli and began meeting with Italian nobles, trying to win them over diplomatically before his armies marched. Gradually, they began coming around. With the suspicions against Berengar never having come out into the open, for now Arnulf sort of kept them under his hat. He moved his army out of Friuli and attacked Milan. You'll remember Milan had flipped pretty consistently for the Gadeshi, thanks to the loyalty of its bishop. Well, Arnulf now besieged Milan and demanded that the bishop be brought to him. According to Liutprand of Cremona, the bishop avoided this fate by hiding in some caves, allowing the townspeople to swear honestly that he was not in the town. This sounds to me a lot like the bishop just legged it, and Liutprand isn't super complimentary about this whole thing. The next thing we hear about Milan in the records is that it's in the hand of a count, so I suspect that either Arnulf appointed this count to rule Milan, or else the people of the city were simply disgusted by the rule of their bishop and appointed someone else. At any rate, this event seems to signal the end of Episcopal rule in Milan, which at this point stretched back to Ambrose of Milan, at this point something like 500 years before. After taking Milan, Arnulf moved on Pavia and started towards Rome. At this point, things slowed way down. Lambert couldn't fight Arnulf, but he was falling back on the tactics that had worked well before, refusing battle, relying on distracting attacks to harry Arnulf, and staying one step ahead of his enemy. This time, however, Arnulf's diplomatic efforts paid off, and Adelbert of Tuscany announced his support for Arnulf. Lambert's main forces moved east, getting out of the way of Arnulf's army, but Angeltrude held Rome itself against Arnulf. Arnulf was forced to storm the walls, and something of a massacre of the Romans resulted. In the confusion, Angeltrude slipped away and fled to her son in Spoleto. But good news, for Moses was freed from the Castello, and Arnulf was crowned emperor. Incidentally, Lambert's crowning was rescinded, and just to be safe, Berengar was removed from office in Friuli. Remember Berengar? Yeah, he's he's out of office now. Even though he was an ally, his land was confiscated. Can't have two kings. After the ceremonies, and while the Romans finished cleaning up all the blood, Arnulf gathered his army back up and got into the saddle, and headed after Lambert and Angeltrude. The Gadeshi were back in Spoleto now, and they probably would have to offer battle. 
They had nowhere else to retreat to. This was their main base of support, backs against the wall. This time it would be all decided. And here was the one battle to decide the fate... Oh, wait, no. No, Arnulf just had a stroke. It says right here. Arnulf headed out of Rome and had a stroke somewhere in eastern central Italy. He left his son Rotold in charge and headed back to Germany, where he died. Well, that's a bit anticlimactic. And, you know, with Arnulf's impending death, Rotold didn't really stick around. He cast about for someone who was competent enough to rule Italy, and he found that guy Berengar hanging around in a closet and put him in charge. You know, the guy Arnulf had tried to disinherit. And then he headed back to Germany to have his say in the upcoming succession dispute. And so, once again, the Germans left Italy, with the Gadeshi nipping at their heels. To add insult to injury, Pope Formosus died at about this time, and was replaced by an anti-Formosan candidate known as Stephen VI. Berengar, suddenly back in control of Italy, offered the Gadeshi a truce on the terms of their first treaty way back in 899, and there was some talk about a marriage alliance. Everyone agreed, and Italy was once again divided between King Lambert, who controlled most of Italy, and King Berengar, who controlled everything north of the Po. Both men set about cleaning house of Arnulf's loyalists. The count that had taken over in Milan, either due to Arnulf's placing him there or some other way, well, he had his head nailed to a tree. An unusually brutal bit of retribution that would seem to indicate that he was not part of the Carolingian clan. Adelbert of Tuscany ended up leading a fairly large army against Lambert, but was beaten easily by the terrifyingly gifted King Lambert. In contrast to the Count of Milan, Adelbert was simply imprisoned, with Lambert promising to come up with some sort of suitable punishment. In Rome, a bizarre event unfolded that has entered legend. The new pope, Stephen VI, was clearly friendly to the Gadeshi and hostile to Formosus. But a little bit more than that, he seems to have despised Formosus. Stephen ordered Formosus's body exhumed and put on trial for the numerous supposed crimes and irregularities his opponents accused him of in life. A bizarre scene unfolded, wherein the corpse was dressed up in his papal clothes and propped up on a throne while clerical lawyers debated for and against his innocence and harangued the dead pope. The coronation of Arnulf was invalidated. The condemnation of Lambert was reversed. Formosus's corpse was condemned to be executed for heresy, and all priests appointed by Formosus in his lifetime were deemed to be invalid. After the trial, Formosus's corpse was either tied with weights and tossed into the Tiber, or else dismembered by an angry mob. Podcast footnote. Okay, you guys, I really didn't want to get into this stuff, but, but pretty much the whole of the issue around Formosus had to do with this thing about disbarring priests. It had been decided way back in late antiquity that the condemnation of a bishop for a crime does not invalidate the appointments that that bishop conducted before his conviction. So long as those appointments, baptisms, and whatever were done correctly, they'd still be valid. The arguments were pretty easy to digest without any doctrinal jargon, so basically, if Bill the bishop is a bad bishop, say he's a heretic or something, how can the church rely on people he appoints? On the other hand, think about the administrative and spiritual nightmare. Because it's not just everything the bishop did, it's everything his priests did, too, that could be invalid. 
you're potentially telling an entire generation of people from a specific region that they are not proper Christians and that their dead relatives potentially went to hell despite the family doing everything in good conscience right. So the decision was made to respect these appointments regardless. And this goes back to St. Augustine, like 500 years before our story. Basically, the argument is that the power to appoint, baptize, and otherwise save people comes from God, not the individuals involved, and that it goes with the office. Salute the office, not the man. No matter the personal sins of the priest, the power of God can still be brought to the people until such time as the priest is removed from office, at which point the power of God is removed from that individual. This is oddly legalistic, maybe, but you can see the reasoning behind it. The issue seems to have come up somewhere in the Christian world once a generation, until at least the end of the early Middle Ages. Hinkmar, who I talked about a few episodes back, wrote a whole treatise on how none of the appointments made by one of his enemies should be validated. I believe it was actually the guy he had blinded. Anyway, the point is that no one took him up on it. These pushes would get some traction early on, because how can an impure priest cleanse the soul? But then once the main hierarchy got involved, things would get shut down pretty quickly. The precipitating events were almost always petty local disputes that often had more to do with the acquisition of land, money, and patronage than they did with doctrine. The issue with Formosus was similar. When our old buddy John the Ninth had excommunicated Formosus, he tried to purge all of Formosus' appointees at the same time. This turned a minor political squabble into a faction fight. Presumably, there was pro-Formosus and pro-John clerics out there for each other's broad based on the basic political issues, and then there was a broad swath of moderates supporting either candidate, but not necessarily wanting to go down the very dangerous road of starting to strip priests of their privileges and telling people that they were condemned to hell unless they got rebaptized. Okay, so that's the background. I, I had to put it in here somewhere. End podcast footnote. Ever since the Cadaver Synod happened, historians have argued about how much the Gadeshi had to do with the event. Chroniclers at the time put the blame squarely on the shoulders of Engeltrude, who was at the trial, fulfilling her role as the domestic functionary for her son's regime. She is portrayed as a cunning and manipulative woman, who used the troops, and possibly her sexuality, to force the church to condemn Formosus. Modern historians have begun to doubt this view. Firstly, I mean, come on people, we've heard this story before. The cunning and manipulative mother creating blasphemous mischief in the name of her son? They might as well have called her Livia and been done with it. Secondly, her presence at the trial is not damning. In all likelihood, the Gadeshi had pressured Stephen to reverse the condemnation of Lambert and resecure his crown from a legal standpoint. That was done, and Angeltrude would have wanted to be on hand to make sure things were going smoothly. But the accounts we get of frenzied mobs, disinterred corpses, and blatant mockery of the dead do not necessarily align with the picture of a clergy forced to make a change at sword point. The judgments of the trial go well beyond anything the Gadeshi would have needed, or possibly even wanted, to the point that, at the very least, there were willing partners within the clergy who may have had their own axes to grind. We should remember that it was Formosus who caused Arnulf to invade Italy three times, and that the third invasion had resulted in the sack of Rome itself. For the anti-Formosan party in Rome, emotions may have been running high, and it was probably not too hard to get carried away by events. Despite raised emotions, the backlash began soon after, and Lambert, who was not in Rome at the time, made a point of distancing himself from the event, even rebuking his mother. 
Of course, given that there was already a backlash in public opinion, maybe we can't necessarily take them at face value. But anyway, it was in this context that Berengar Friuli finally decided to invade. It only took him a couple months. We don't really know why he chose this moment, but it was probably inevitable that the two men left standing after this whole kerfuffle would come to blows. Berengar may have hoped to find Lambert's regime weakened by the papal scandal, but if he did, he reckoned without one thing. Lambert was a terrifying military wonderkind, who was now 18 and had been leading armies to victory since the age of 11. His men were veterans who had just seen off the king of Germany and beaten Adelbert of Tuscany. Berengar, by contrast, well, he was none of those things. You know, I, I don't think he ever won a battle. There was that one battle that was a draw. Anyway, according to one story, Lambert was out hunting when he heard of Berengar's invasion. Rather than waiting for reinforcements or anything, he gathered the men he had at hand and ambushed Berengar, destroying his entire army and capturing the man himself. Then he went back to hunting. Insert awesome metal solo right here. So that's it, right? Lambert's king. The Gedeshi have done it, man. They did it all. Well, for a few days, yes. But, alas, it didn't last. While hunting, Lambert either fell from his horse or was assassinated, depending on whether or not you are Lou Prand of Cremona. I feel like there should be a game that goes with this series. Royal Death Bingo. Actually, yeah, I'm making this happen. If you go to the website and go to the block entry for this episode, you'll find a number of image files for five bingo cards. You and your friends can print them out, and then start listening to this show at pretty much any point. The first to get five across or five down wins. Maybe come up with a nice snarky regnal name for the winner. Go nuts. Have fun. Today, we covered a lot of ground. We started with the death of Emperor Guy, met Guy IV of Spoleto, and saw Lambert and Engeltrude fight off Arnulf of Corinthia twice, the second time due to a timely stroke. We talked about the Cadaver Synod, and saw the final showdown between the Gadeshi and Berengar that turned out to not actually be so final when Lambert suffered a random royal death. Next time, we will begin the denouement and epilogue of the Gadeshi miniseries. We will see the Gadeshi kingdom unravel and discuss the fate of Italy after they go. I'm not sure yet if this is going to take one or two episodes. I don't think it's going to take more. But rest assured, there's a lot of terrible things that are going to happen to a lot of people that seem like they were probably pretty nice. You won't want to miss it, so tune in next time for From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. I love the Gadeshi. These people are ridiculous. Okay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.